tonight. I've uh, been trying to sort of keep our Advent themes on Sunday mornings and and maybe pick out uh, one element of the Christmas story. Uh, two, you, you know this if you've been here a while, most of you have, but uh, two of my favorite, uh, fun, funny enough, two of my favorite Christmas story characters are Simeon and Hannah, uh, the widow in Luke. Uh, there's just something about their stories that's just intriguing to me, and I wanted to share in regards to Simeon tonight, it's in Luke chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 25. Uh, we know uh, earlier in that, in a few verses earlier, verse 21, and when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And, and when the days of their purification, were, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to pre present him to the Lord. Uh, and then he cites, as it's written there in the law of the Lord, the, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And then our text, and there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to carry, to carry, him, to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. There's our word this morning. According to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. A sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Uh, it's interesting, just a quick note in uh, verse 35, uh, you may have a hyphen there in your Bible, but there's a sort of a, a, a parenthetical phrase inserted there. Um, so you might read it this way, behold, the child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What's in between that sort of a parenthetical uh, in the construction of the Greek there. So it really is helpful. So I just want to think about Simeon tonight and really just think about the eyes that happen to see. Uh, Simeon, his name literally means he who hears or a man of hearing. And so I'm just thinking about this, this man and how God had prepared this man for such an extraordinary event. I'm always amazed, aren't you, when you read the Christmas story uh, with an event like this, uh, it seems striking to me that so few people knew it. Uh, it's as if the whole world was asleep, but there were these select few who, by the grace and mercy of God, were arranged providentially to be there, and, and the Spirit worked in such a way as these unusual people uh, were the only ones that could see and recognize what it was that was happening. Sometimes with the shepherds, in their case, it was about, by angelic revelation who this was. Uh, for, for Simeon, uh, it was by Holy Spirit revelation. Uh, Hannah goes on later, and I think the same tr thing is true of her. So seemingly 
<coughs> relatively insignificant people are the only ones, it seems, who are recognizing who this, who this baby is, who the child is in the manger. But I think first of that, we see a lot about Simeon in that he is a man who hears. Uh, it suggests to me, by his name at least, that Simeon was an attentive man. Uh, he's going to go on later on to, uh, to quote some Old Testament prophecies, but he was not a man who was ignoring uh, the word or ignoring circumstances. He was a, an attentive man. He was a hearing man. His very name means he was hearing. Maybe he means here hearing the Holy Spirit. Maybe he means sensitive to the Holy Spirit. I don't know exactly what they mean in, name, in his name being hearing, but he is a hearing man. And I think that's important in regards to what he experienced. Notice as well in, in that 25th verse that he was in Jerusalem. I was thinking to myself, in some ways, uh, in terms of Christ's ministry to the world, Jerusalem is like the center of the universe. You ever think about that? I mean, if, if the God who created the universe and all that exists uh, came into being and, and came into the incarnation, as it were, uh, in Bethlehem, and all that was centered around Jerusalem where the temple was, God's relating to humanity, the focal point of that relating to them is coming out of Jerusalem. And I think it's going to have a prominent place in the unfolding of the future in general, prophetically and eschatologically. It's going to have a prominent place there as well. But that's where he is. So here we've got already a hearing man in Jerusalem. I mean, here's a guy that's sensitive to what's going on, and he's in the most sensitive central place in all the universe for the unfolding of the plan of God. And he's ripe, he's ripe to see the Messiah here. So he's in Jerusalem. It could have been possibly that he was there uh, for, the, for the census that had been called. Maybe he had come back to register there. Either way, the providence of God had him in this central place. And he is there and he is a hearing man or he is one who hears. Certainly for every Jew, Israel or Jerusalem was the very center of the universe. That was the place, the temple where God had covenanted to come to his people and, and really manifest his presence among his people. So certainly to the Jews, it was central. Uh, it seems some have suggested as well by verses later on where he says, once I've seen the Messiah, uh, I'm ready to go on. You can, I can die in peace now. Some have surmised from that that he was an aged man. Some have even speculated that perhaps he was retired from the priesthood. He had be, gotten beyond the age of service, but yet he, he's so accustomed to being in the temple that he would come every day as the ministries were unfolding in the temple, the ministries he used to do. So here's, a, here's a, an ex-priest who's no longer young enough to do the priestly duties, but he's there in the temple every day. That's where he's lived his life. And so he's a hearing man, and he's in Jerusalem. The verse say as well, verse 30, 25, and not only was he there, this hearing man, but it describes him as a righteous man. I think that would surely involve his character, uh, the kind of man he was, but I, I think it also has the idea that he was a man abiding under God's ordained uh, conditions for that relationship in his time, which was still the law. 
And so he was offering the proper sacrifices. He was uh, fulfilling the law. So he was righteous in the sense that he was an obedient man. He's, a, he's there in the temple. He's a hearing man. He's in the central place of God's revelation. And he's a faithful man. He is carrying out the law. He is doing that with a good conscience and a good character. So he was a moral good man. This Simeon. Perhaps every day in the temple, maybe not just this day, but perhaps every day in the temple. He is a righteous man. It's interesting to me uh, how sometimes the character, uh, God's transformation of our character, uh, it doesn't mean that we've gained some righteousness by our exercise of discipline and obedience that finds us achievement with God. But I'm convinced that Re Simeon here is a recipient of the mercy that Christ is providing. His righteous character is because of the work of God in him. He says upon him later, the Holy Spirit's upon him. So God has produced providentially in the heart of this Simeon, this righteous man, this man who is walking in fellowship and in obedience to what he believes in understands and knows to be the word of God. But it says more about him as well. He's a righteous man, but it says here he's a devout man. And I thought that was significant. He is a devoted man. That speaks to me again of the heart of the man. He's not just, he's not just somebody who had conformed their behavior according to the law. He was devoted to God. The reason that his desire for obedience and the, and the way he brought the word to bear in his life demonstrated he's devoted to these things. He wants to live a life that's honoring to God. He, he wants to be a true Israelite, as Jesus said of Nathaniel, uh, a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. He wanted to be that kind of Israelite. So this is not a man offering lip service. This is not a man wearing some outward cloak of righteousness who secretly loves the praise of men in public places. He's not a man that loves the chief seats in the synagogues. This is a truly righteous man and a devout man. This is the man that's in the temple and he's sensitive and he's, he's attentive because he knows something's coming. He's preparing Himself and has been and God has been preparing this man. So don't separate those two. Don't say he's a righteous man and forget that he was also a devout man. And don't, don't say he was a devout man and forget that he was a righteous man. This was a man obedient to God from the heart. That's different, folks. I mean, Jesus rebuked men uh, of Pharisee and men who knew the word. And he said, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They're righteous men, but they are not devout men. In fact, in one place, Jesus even says, the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So what they bid you do, do. They have an authority as taking that seat of teaching, opening the scriptures, giving the expo ex exposition of that word. Do what they tell you to do. They know the scriptures, but don't do what they do. In other words, these men knew the word, but they didn't live out the word. So he said, don't follow their example, but do what they tell you to do. When they sit in the seat of Moses and they open the scrolls and they begin to teach you the law of God, do as they bid you do, but don't do what they do. And he goes on to rebuke these men. Simeon, I don't think, was that sort of man. He was a righteous man and a devout man. In verse 25 as well, you see also that he was an expectant man. He wasn't just hanging out there. 
Uh, this, this revelation didn't just come on him and, and, and just surprise him out of the blue. Simeon was there. He was an attentive man. He was a righteous man. He was a devout man. And he was expecting something. Uh, I thought about that in application. When you come to church, do you come expecting something? Or is it just coming and, and the routine and checking the boxes? We're here. And, and if God does something, he'll, hey, he'll have to surprise us because we're certainly not expecting him to do anything. Simeon's were not like that at all. Simeon was in the temple, whether he was there from the census or whether he was there regularly as a retired priest, he was in the temple perhaps every day, devout man, a righteous man, and man, he was looking for something. I am expecting something today. I wonder how different it would be if we gathered with expectancy of what God may do. It says particularly what he was expecting about, he says he was looking for the consolation of Israel looking for the consolation of Israel. Uh, ultimately, we know that that's Christ because he says later on in regards to uh, the Lord's Christ. But I also think, in fact, that by the verse he quotes, he must have been studying the prophecies. Maybe Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, where uh, Jesus is spoken of as a light to the Gentiles by his own quote there. But I also thought perhaps uh, he was read, reading as, as well what was shared this morning from Micah. This one will be our peace. Or Malachi, the one whom you seek will suddenly appear. So maybe he's a student of the scriptures. If he was the priestly class, he would have known those well. And so he had been studying those things out. And he's thinking, someday, someday he's going to suddenly appear in the temple. The one whom we seek, he's just going to suddenly appear. Someday, someday the light of the Gentiles is going to show up in the temple. And he's got a short life. Maybe he was a priest and he served all those years expecting, is today the day? And it wasn't that day. And he went through his whole ministry perhaps and ministered to others for years and years and years. Every day thinking, could this be the day? And he's back at the temple perhaps now, retired, no longer serving actively as a priest. But he goes every day and he's righteous and he's devout and he's attentive and he's expecting maybe today is the day. I can just almost in my mind's eye picture an old, an old fellow that's already been over and had many years of faithfulness with his, with his shawl over him and his prayer cloth and just, just moseying around in the temple and maybe praying on from one end to the other and one end to the other and just, and just with this sense of expectancy. He's there in the temple. If anything's going to happen, it's going to happen here. This man was expecting. I love the phrase, the consolation of Israel. Their consolation. I'm awaiting Israel's consolation. They had suffered and they had been afflicted and oppressed through the generations. They had been rebellious at times and, and they were due, as it were, the wrath of God Almighty. But oh, there's a promised Messiah coming and, and it's, it'll be the consolation of Israel. I want to I be here when he comes. That's what this man is thinking. An expectant man in verse 25 and 26, uh, also the first of verse 26, you see as well that here's a man informed by the Holy Spirit. So, so he's not just exercising his intellect here. He hasn't just reasoned out in the scriptures that uh, as best I can see, 
I, it might be that the Messiah is about to come. There were some things the Holy Spirit was upon him revealing some things. I think ultimately provoking in him this anticipation of the consolation that was to come and, and this excitement and this steadiness as he came to the temple anticipating perhaps the consolation of Israel would arrive. So he's a man informed by the Holy Spirit. He was, it's interesting as well, but he was specifically informed, if you see that in those passages, it had been revealed to him, 26, by the Holy Spirit, that very specifically, you will not die until you see the Lord's Christ. <laughs> Think about that. <clears throat> I don't know how old he was, but maybe he was on up in years. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and maybe he was beginning to think that my life's kind of coming to an end and I've had this expectancy that maybe I would be one of those rare individuals who would be alive when the Messiah come to earth and, and the prophecies were fulfilled, fulfilled. Maybe I'll be that man and his years were winding down and they were running out as it were. The sand of the hourglass was almost in and then the Holy Spirit reveals to him, no, Simeon, you're not going to die until you see him. Can you imagine the excitement of that? What if, what if the Lord would say that to you now by the Holy Spirit? What if he came to Brother Mike tonight and he said, Mike, Michael Brown, you will not see death until Christ, you see Christ return in the flesh. Do you think he'd be excited? <laughs> Absolutely. We would be expectant. Our years, are, our years are coming to their conclusion. The Lord intervenes. We're starting to lose hope that we'll see the Messiah born. And the Lord comes by the Holy Spirit and says, no, 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 Simeon. You've been righteous and you've been faithful and you've been devoted and you've been attended to my word all these many years. Simeon, I'm extending to you the most extraordinary mercy. You will not see death until you see the Lord's Christ. Man, I, I guarantee you that put a pep in Simeon's step. I'm not going anywhere, people. Uh, I, would have been the, I would have been the bravest man in the world until Jesus came. <laughs> because you can't kill me. I've already been told by the Lord I'm not going anywhere until I see Jesus. So I've been confronting all them people that have been picking on me all those years, <laughs> doing all those things. So he's an expectant man. He's a man informed by the Holy Spirit. Really, he's uh, through the same Holy Spirit. He's also an enlightened man. Look in verse 30 uh, through 33. Because once he sees Christ, he says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So not only did he, was he going to see the Christ, but he was an enlightened man. He knew uh, who this Christ was. He's the salvation of Israel. So, so he's not only... Not only thinking in terms of this kingly Messiah that so many people were expecting in that day. In fact, they were desperate for this kingly Messiah who would arrive and overthrow their oppressors and do away with religious and political corruption and, and deliver peace and justice for the people once again. There was a lot of expectancy for that. But here's Simeon, and he seems, to, he seems to understand something in regards to the nature of how this Messiah is going to deliver them. In fact, he says later on, he says to Mary in verse 35, that a sword will pierce even your own soul. So he seems to be an enlightened man and understood that this Messiah was going to, it was going to involve some suffering and some pain. And it wasn't going to unfold in regards to the way people generally thought it was going to happen so he was an enlightened man so let's look real closely as we 
sort of conclude tonight how this unfolds. He had been revealed, verse 26, that he would not see death before he saw the temple. I want you to just for a minute with a sanctified imagination, imagine the scene here. Here's this perhaps older man had been waiting in the Messiah, had been revealed to him that he would not see death before he saw the Messiah, and he's running out of years, and he knows that his death is near, so the Messiah must be near too. So he's milling around in the temple area, and he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he, this is interesting to me, then he took him into his arms. This is why I lean, lean, lean towards the idea that he might have once been a priestly duty because he just, he just takes the child into his arms. And I'm sure, what would you do if a complete stranger walked up to you to take your child? You would probably be inclined to, whoa, 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 what are you doing? So, so it may be that they even understood what his role was there. And, he, and I can just imagine when he came up to them, he was looking at this child and the spirit was saying, this is the Messiah. And, and maybe he was trembling and tears were beginning to flow. And, and he, was, he was just soft in his tone. And he, and he looked at his mother's eyes maybe and he reached for the child and please, please, may I? And, and she gently brings the child towards him. He takes him in his arms and, and he says these things. I can almost see it in my mind's eye. And he took him into his arms and he blessed God. And he said, now, Lord, now, Lord, you're, you are releasing your servant, bond servant, to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Can you imagine the experience in the heart of Simeon there? It's just amazing to even think about it. I mean, I don't know how long he had been under the impression that he might be able to see the Messiah, but at some point the Lord ensured him, you're not going to die, Simeon. So every day of his life from the day of that assurance was in anticipation of seeing that Messiah. And that day finally came for him. And I can't imagine how he was not overcome with emotion in that moment. Tears of joy. Tear, uh, just absolute tears of joy, so much so that uh, he probably trembled in his voice even as he was proclaiming these very things. Simeon got to see Jesus. Notice as well, this is part of his enlightenment as well, verse 33, and, and his father and mother, Mary and Joseph, when he said these things which were being said, they were amazed at the things that we've been saying about them. Uh, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 19, they were the same way when the shepherds said what they said. They were amazed with these things. And it says there, they treasured, Mary treasured these things in her heart, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God. And, and here again, we have Simeon identifying and affirming what they had already been told by Gabriel and the angelic announcements and the shepherds and, and the angels and everybody else. He's confirming that. And they were amazed, it says, at the things which were being said about him. And then Simeon in verse 34 blesses them. And he says to Mary, behold, this child, notice here, is appointed, appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. That first reference I think there has the idea, uh, even Jesus said it, uh, Upon whom this stone falls, they'll be crushed. But whoever trips over this stone, they'll stumble. So there is a sense in which this child is set 
He's set where he is, appointed in this position to bring about the fall of many, the righteous, the self-righteous. They will stumble and fall over this one. But at the same time, he's set in this position to produce the rising again of many as well. So many, many are going to fall and rise again at, the, at this one here. He is appointed for this. It's almost as if he's saying to Mary, there's going to be turmoil and opposition. There is going to be in this child that I'm holding in our salvation, you need to understand that there is going to be a, a producing, this child is going to produce a falling down of many. They're going to stumble over this child. He's so controversial. But at the same time, many are going to rise from that stumbling because of this child as well. That's the kind of kid you've got in your hand there. And don't be alarmed, Mary, when it happens because he was appointed for this. This is the appointment that he's keeping. And to me, that shows me that Simeon, the Holy Spirit, was revealing some pretty serious realities about the Lord's Christ. And when he took that baby from her arms, he understood what's ahead of this child. And that's why I said there were tears of joy, I'm sure, but there, there had to be also somewhat tears of grief and mourning because he seems to have recognized that this child is, is heading for a cross. And yes, we rejoice, but our hearts are breaking as well because of the suffering ahead of this child. He's appointed to this. And you wonder how much Mary understood at that moment. But he goes on as well, not only that, but he's appointed for a sign to be opposed, a signal as it were. This child is, is going to stir up opposition. I'm always amazed at Easter how quickly it went from the crowds crying, Hosanna, receiving the Messiah. In a few short days, the crowds yelling, crucify Crucify him, kill him, the man they just coronated as the, uh, as the son of David. And now they're ready to crucify him? Why? Because he didn't, he didn't fulfill their expectations in the way that they thought he ought to. So clearly he must not be the kingly Messiah who will trample the enemies for us. And so he must be an imposter. So yes, kill him, kill him. This, he's appointed for this. That's what he's telling Mary. Here you've got your newborn child in your hand and you've heard the angelic announcements and you heard the angels praising God and singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace towards uh, those with whom he is pleased. You've, you've heard the announcement of the, of the divine nature of this children and your, and your emotions are high and you're overwhelmed in her magnificat. Mary, Mary proclaims all these things. But here's a man telling her he's appointed to be the, 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 the rock of stumbling for so many and also the rock of rising. But now she's telling him he's, he's appointed to be opposed. He's going to be assigned to the people and they're going to come in opposition against him. So the son that you hold in your arm is going to be opposed. And this is why I think that parenthetical statement is there. Because it's as if he's interrupting the, what he's seeing there and he's, and he's thinking about the opposition and the extreme to which it's going to go and suddenly his heart turns to a, a mother who he knows now because of what he sees of Christ is going to experience an excruciating pain as she watches her son suffer this way. And so his attention turns from the Messiah momentarily to the mother here and he says, 
A sword will pierce your own soul. Prophesying to Mary, there's pain ahead for you, Mary. Because this son whom, whom you take such joy now and whom you're, you're, you're reeling in your heels about all the, all the angelic announcements and everything that's involved with this birth of this child and your, your heart is elated and, and you're, you're just overwhelmed with anticipation and expectations. Mary, remember, he's going to be opposed and that opposition is going to brutalize him and as you witness that, a sword will pierce your own soul. So yes, Mary, rejoice. You have, you have this blessed person, blessed status of being the womb, the virgin womb by which the Savior would come into the world. And you will forever be honored because of that. But Mary, remember, there's going to be some pain, serious pain involved for you because this son has a destiny that you don't yet realize. And I think, I think in many ways, even if you read the Gospels, uh, she began to realize that more fully, it seems, as, as they approached his life and ministry and even as approached the cross. You remember uh, when he first started his ministry, they were at the wedding feast. And she comes to him uh, worried about the, uh, the, the, the wedding host being dishonored because they ran out of wine. And he, he challenged her mildly, kind of uh, pushes back against his mother there. And he says, woman, what have I to do with you? You've misunderstood me. I'm not here to fix the wedding ceremony. I'm not here to fill up the wine jars when they run out. I'm here for so much more, Mother. Nevertheless, she yields in that moment, and she tells the service, whatever he tells you do, I'll let him work this out. And, and he turns in, he turns providing for the wine in such a practical, merciful thing, he turns it into a parable of himself and of the glory of Christ. This is the sword she will feel for this son. And then the final one, why is he going to be opposed? Why is he going to be this appointed for this fall and rise of many in Israel? He picks back up on his train of thought at the end of verse 35. To the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He's going to expose men's hearts. Because he's, because he's set for the fall and rising again of many and because he's set and appointed as a sign and to be opposed in, in all that ministry, he is going to expose the thoughts of men's heart. They will be rendered guilty as it were. What you do with this child, what people do with this child ultimately will decide and reveal what it is that's in their heart. And I think that's true even unto this day today. What you do with Christ this person of Christ is still in some ways performing the same ministry in the opposition in your heart's own opposition to him. You reveal your, it reveals your own heart and your heart's acceptance of him and your love and devotion for him. His presence produces as well, reveals that sentiment of your heart as well. That's what this son of yours is set for the revealing of men's hearts. What's funny to me about this passage is that, Verse 35, Luke just ends it. I mean, I, 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 when I read this, I'm like, come on, Luke. Can I get a little, can I get a little what happened after the story? One of those uh, uh, Harvey Lee, or what was his name? Paul Harvey situations. The rest of the story. I want to know what happened to Simeon. Did he die immediately? Did he just fall over and go into the presence of the Lord? Did he live another 15, 20 years? 
Did he come back to the temple every day saying, I was here one day 10 years ago and you'll never believe what happened. I was expecting the Messiah and in walked a mother and she had the Messiah in her arms and I got to take him in my arms and oh, I was ready to die even in that moment. But the Lord's left me here and maybe he had been talking to Anna over the years. And Anna was hanging around too and she knew that Simeon was respected and she respected him and so she hung around too because if, if, he's, if he's been promised to Simeon that he's going to show up before he dies, I'm hanging around Simeon, aren't you? I'm going to be hanging out with Simeon. And if, and if Simeon's not dead, that means I might get a glimpse of the Messiah. I almost think that's what Anna did. And she devoted her whole life, almost her whole life as a widow, hanging around the temple because she, she must have known somehow or another, I'm going to get to lay my eyes on the Messiah. And sure enough, she does. But Luke just dropped Simeon's story. I'd be a good, some of you imaginative people, just do up a, fiction, a fictional account of what happened to Simeon afterwards. That'd be an interesting novel to write, a fiction novel it would be. But it's interesting to think about that. Here's, here's what I thought about in light of, of that story and even Hannah's. And I think what appeals to me about that is that God reveals himself to the most common people doing the most common things. These were not high priests. These were not kings. These were not, these were not people of great importance. These were common people, shepherds in a field watching over sheep, not particularly admired by anybody. And if you've ever been around a farmer, they don't smell too good coming from the barn. They're not the kind of dinner guest you might want to have right out of the barn at your table. Common folks. He was a, perhaps a retired priest, perhaps just a Jew whom God had prompted and he had come into the temple. Here's Anna, a widow. Nobody was paying much attention to her. They was probably to provide for her support. But here they all were, all were in the providence of God converging in Israel at the temple on this day, the eighth day after his birth, as, Jesus, as Mary and Joseph bring the Messiah into the temple to do the hymn according to the law. And all of them, all that converged at that single point for God to make his revelation to these particular people. Think about that. I mean, I believe with all my heart from the foundation of the world, Simeon was chosen out and selected and every molecule in the universe assured that he would be at the exact place at the exact time to see the exact thing that God had revealed and planned beforehand for him to see. How unique is Simeon in all the world? How unique is Mary? How unique is, how unique is Anna? How unique are those shepherds? They're unnamed, but, but, but surely someone knew their name. Maybe they knew it amongst themselves, but we don't even know their names. But there were shepherds in the field who were given this great revelation. I don't know the names of the kings who came, uh, followed the star from the east, but they were providentially allowed by their reasoning and their scientific study to be watching a star. God moved the whole universe to bring all these people into this little bleedy town of Bethlehem to see this Messiah. Now here's the application for us. God has done the same thing in your life. 
Everything you've been through, everywhere you've come from, your whole life experience, your background, your roots, your heritage, your fact that you're born in America, every, there's not a single aspect of your life, not even down to your molecular construction that God hasn't ordained for a specific purpose of revealing to you his son. Isn't that amazing? And he didn't do that to let you debate about it. <laughs> He did that to bring about in you faith in himself, in Christ. And in doing so, assured you that what he has ordained for you from the foundation of the world will go all the way into eternity, never-ending fullness of joy in the presence of God Almighty. He moved every molecule in the universe to position you to receive such a blessing just for you just for you. And he did it for the millions of other believers in just as personal and just as a unique way as he did in your individual life. There's no substitute for either of you. Y'all know that, right? There's not, a, there's not another Mike Brown. There's not another Brian Churl. There's not another Larry Holloman. God has worked uniquely in each of our lives to bring us to this place to where we've seen and beheld the Messiah and received him and embraced him. And he worked uniquely in your life as, just as he's worked uniquely in every other person who's ever come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's why, that's why Christmas is so special. It really is. This is that God who has come to earth. Highest glory. The highest revelation, manifestation, manifestation of the glory of God ever. He says in Hebrews, lying before you is the exact representation of God. Uh, that's his highest glory on display at Christmas. And I pray these thoughts and what we've been sharing will be with us throughout Christmas. Stand with me tonight. Thank you for coming in your attention. Father, thank you for the Luke's recording of Simeon's experience and even later Anna's as well. Lord, it would have been really easy for a historian perhaps to to, to view particularly Anna's and maybe to some degree Simeon's experiences, not, not all that relevant to the great story and the great reality revealed by the angelic host. But Father, I thank you that the Spirit moved Luke to include these narratives. They were people like us. They were people who Simeon particularly who were expectant and who were being faithful and father righteous and trying to be obedient and, and you extended grace to them. And thank you for the word to remind us that we have the same grace, that you have called each of us individually in the very same way. You have moved our hearts, opened our eyes and drew us to yourself and revealed to us our great Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, Father, we thank you for that grace tonight. We ask in Christ's name, amen.